This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I am Eralda Lameborshi, your host for this episode. And today I am speaking with my dear friend and brilliant academic, Marta Pushan Oliva, whose book, Narrative Reliability, Racial Conflicts and Ideology in the Modern Novel, was published by Rutledge in their Literary Criticism and Cultural Theory series. Marta is Ramon y Cayal, senior researcher at the University of the Balearian Islands in Spain. She has worked at the University of Pompeu Fabra, Harvard University, the Universitat de Barcelona, and the Universitat Oberta de Catalunya. Marta has conducted research periods at New York University, Princeton University, the University of Chicago, and Harvard University. This last one was a Marie Sklodowska Curie outgoing fellowship from the European Commission. She is a specialist in comparative literature, especially in the fields of narrative theory, comparative racial studies, eco-criticism, and global literary studies. She has published various articles on these topics in journals like Poetics Today, Studies in the Novel, English Studies, Letral, Journal of Global History, and the Journal of World Literature. Her book, as I mentioned earlier, Narrative Reliability, Racial Conflicts, and Ideology in the Modern Novel, published by Rutledge, bridges narrative theory with a constitution of racial ideologies. Currently, she works on the global novel in the I plus D project, co-directed with Neus Ruge, the novel as a global platform, poetic challenges, and cross-border circulation. For the last few years, she has been working on global environments in literature, especially the ocean, studying environmental criminality at sea in contemporary literary and film narratives. She is a member of the research group Contemporary Literature, Comparative Studies, and Theory. It is such a pleasure to be able to talk with you, Marta, and thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thank you, Eralda, for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about it and for your generous reading. (laughs) So um, I wanted to start by asking about the story or the origin of the book. Uh, What was the initial idea that transformed to the book we now hold? How did that seed of an idea develop into this finished project? So um, I got very interested about uh, the narrative technique of unreliability uh, by reading Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. And I was very focused on uh, language and form. I was studying that in my master thesis in Spain. And it was only... um, when I started investigating about it, that I realized um, that I was never taught about the racial context 
um, in the U.S. that was contemporary to Faulkner. And then uh, when I started reading his um, nonfiction texts and essays, I realized that all that he was talking about was about the racial context. So I realized that even if for me it seemed that form and unreliability was the most important part of the book, right. it really wasn't. <laughs> so and then I started asking myself why, why um, that was so, and and how and how were these two important elements connected? So I decided to write a dissertation on that book and uh, a parallel phenomenon that I could see happening in in, in, in Conrad's Law Gym. And then I, I started detecting that, in fact, narrative reliability was being used in several contemporary novels to discuss uh, complicated ideological conflicts, and in that case, racial ones. And then that's how I ended up uh, writing a dissertation on Conrad's Lord Jim and Faulkner's Absalom Absalom, but thinking about a number of novels that were doing so, uh, which I finally ended up developing um, in my post-dissertation project, which was this book. Right. Um, So it's... It's a long, long journey to get here, and I'm just uh, really glad that the book is here. I think it's absolutely brilliant, and it, um, it, it creates some really important interventions in narrative theory, but also you know, talking about um, the historical underpinnings of the racial politics in, in, the, in the literature. And so I wanted to start uh, with talking mainly about the theoretical framework that you build here uh, in the book and ask a question about uh, some of the remarks that you make in the introduction, which is really wonderful to ground the reader in in those theoretical foundations of the book and how um, those those theories inform your analysis in the case studies. Um, And I was specifically looking at this one passage, which I will read, because I don't think that my paraphrasing would be better phrased than what you did (laughs) here in the book. But um, you write that this book focuses on the intertwined relationship between narrative reliability and racial conflicts and ideologies. It argues that the problem of reliability in narrative fiction often makes use of the problem of reliability in historical discourse, and that we need to examine a work of fiction's historical context in order to comprehend technical modulations of narrative reliability. Can you speak a little more on the idea of enactment of racial conflict that shows elsewhere in the in the introduction as a tool to experiment with narrative reliability? And maybe, you know, you can also illustrate this with examples from the novels that you analyze in the book. Um, sure. Uh, I think um, that when we are focusing on narrative reliability and especially unreliability, which is the technique that has been more studied, um, we forget that this is a rhetorical technique that is happening elsewhere, everywhere, and that in fact any political discourse is um, relying on that axis of credibility or that principle of credibility. 
And therefore, when we uh, look at ideologies and especially like racial ideologies, which are clearly um, constructing a specific view with many times very unstable um, basis, um, this issue of credibility is um, very, very um, at the core of those ideologies, right? And and for example, I'll give a brief example, but for example, the idea of um, the mulatto, for example, that um, is a figure that appears in the census in the United States um, but all of a sudden is abolished from the census in, in 1920. And a, a whole ideological construct is buttressing the need or and existence of a mulatto prior to 1920. And after that, because there are mulattoes will be assimilated into this uh, black race in the division between white and black races in the segregation established by the segregation, then the idea of the mulatto all of a sudden disappears. It doesn't disappear, of course, but it legally disappears. And therefore, you would, this is an example of how you will have a discourse, a political and legal and social discourse that is going to be constructed in one way or another, appealing to a credibility that all of a sudden changes because the census changes. So that is an example of how you need to um, provide a special reliability in politics. And this appears, for example, especially in Absalom Absalom, but also in James Weldon Johnson, the autobiography of an ex-scholar man, which is another of my examples. Um, thank you. That, that really clarifies a lot. And I think the example of the mulatto that, that you provided is um, such an apt one to illustrate your idea of. And I, and, and I really like this phrase that, that you mentioned, the excess of credibility or principle of credibility. Um, well, and, and, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about it as, as I sort of go through some of the other questions. Um, so I found your discussion on historicizing uh, narrative theory very compelling, um, as, especially as it intervenes in the more dominant posture of conflating historiography and fiction. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little more at length on why you think that this intervention is necessary. And I think this connects to your previous answer, of course, um, and, and what is responding to. And I think the example um, that you just provided uh, perhaps responds to that or to this question. But more importantly, I was wondering if you can discuss your approach as one that's closer to Marxist postcolonial and cultural perspectives on literature. Yeah, sure. I think that um, you're right to think that uh, the idea of historicizing narrative theory is something that is coming out lately in the field of narratology um, through especially work, uh, the work of, of authors like Greta Olson or Sarah Copland, for example, um, who are, or Stephanie Iverson, who are working with the idea that you cannot divorce 
politics and history from narrative strategies, uh, no matter how much you want to focus on language, because finally, language is not separable from meaning and language is used for providing meaning. So part of the problem of narratology as a field has been historically that it's become very abstract and very against, I would say, in many occasions against history or neglecting history. And by history, I, I mean like a bro- history in a broad sense, including also, of course, all kinds of cultural studies or um, political perspectives or economic perspectives or ideolo- any kind of ideological perspectives, right? I think that is, of course, as you say, um, an, uh, an, a perspective that very much which uh, comes from Marxist, as you say, and post-colonial studies. Um, in, in many ways, I've always felt closer to Marxist studies rather than post-colonial, even if uh, post-colonial studies have shaped many of my perspectives. But I, what, I, what I mean by this is that what I've tried to do in this book and what I mean by historicizing narrative theory is focusing and investigating context. So not staying at the discourse level, which is very interesting, very important to understand how language works and how ideologies work, but also you need to understand what is the context in which ideologies operate. And therefore, uh, to follow my earlier example, um, it's the idea of the mulatto in the United States, um, for example, in the 1920s, has nothing to do with the idea of the half case in the British Empire in the, in the late 19th century. Um, so, why? Because the, the stereotype has been built in a special way that it helps um, perform certain political actions. Uh, And therefore, um, that um, really makes the context relevant. Every racial conflict that I study in in this book is using certain stereotypes that have been seen from sometimes post-colonial studies or books that stay at the abstract level uh, as some um, stereotypes that work more similarly than they do in their actual context and than they do in the specific novels. And so when I mean historicizing, I mean really looking, and there's a lot of effort in that sense, but looking at what happens in that historical context and how that stereotype is being used at a certain moment, right? And 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 I think that's what we need, even if it's a lot of effort. It's 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 part of what makes I oh makes sense of the ideologies and makes us understand how the ideologies are operating um, for every case. <sighs> yeah, um, I and so since we are on the on this idea of stereotype. You stated that stereotype performs political actions, which I, I really love that formulation. And and your discussion on the notion of stereotype in the book itself, where you invoke Toni Morrison, uh, where she states that uh, stereotypes are a form of narrative economy. Um, and 
I mean, it, it ties so so beautifully with you know this idea of excess of credibility stereotypes as um, as credible uh, signs or, or or constructions or constructs that uh, tell a story by virtue of of um, of the narrative that they provide here. And so, um, could you extend a little bit your um, discussion, which you just started on, you know, this idea of stereotypes and how they figure in your work theoretically, but also in terms of how they show up and shape narratives and the novels that you have selected to discuss in the book? Sure. I think that it is very, the, the idea of the stereotype as um, a form that it's not, in fact, fixed or like an image but it's something that is the bill that tells a story um is what tony morrison means by saying that the the stereotypes are a form of economy in 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 technical terms because you introduce into the narrative the stereotype and then you don't need to say uh, uh, a lot of things that that are presumed by the legacy or the way in what in, in which that stereotype has been constructed. So um, then that helps the narrative to move forward in a certain way, or it helps this kind of narratives that I'm looking at, which are which are uh, narratives that include a lot of gaps, a lot of enigmas, a lot of uncertainties to fill those gaps. And we can talk about this later. But um, what the stereotype is doing is guiding the narrative towards a certain point thanks to the ways in which that stereotype in that specific racial conflict at the moment in which at least the book is being produced um, is asking the reader to fill in um, so that to fill those gaps. And I think in that sense, we haven't looked enough the ways the narratives that every specific stereotype is telling for each of the novels we're looking at. And I think that is a very interesting exercise that shows how stereotypes are finally narrative forms and how they are perpetuating in a way by making those assumptions and feeling those silences, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I also wonder too, you know, because as you say that stereotypes are narratives and they are not fixed, right? That they are, that they are shifting and changing and they are getting, um, and they reflect perhaps shifts, cultural shifts as well. Um, I also wonder if in the, the, the nature, sort of this protean nature of the narratives um, also mirrors the, the, the narratives with gaps and enigmas in the sense that if, for instance, we had a, uh, a stereotype, let's say three decades ago, um, that now doesn't necessarily apply or doesn't necessarily hold the same story that it might have three decades ago, that in some ways it might be um, considered to be non-threatening or non, uh, or, or, or as it, it doesn't contribute anything discursively to the current moment. It seems to me that part of what you're arguing is that regardless of what the narrative of a stereotype is right now, it's important to actually link it to the narrative that it held in that specific historical yeah. context where it was birthed. 
Yes, totally so. Mm -hmm. And and I can provide here one of the examples I found yes. with that, which is the 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 case of the English gentleman in in Conrad's lordship. This stereotype is especially interesting in the way you're pointing out. First, for two reasons. First, because it's not a stereotype that has perpetuated to our present moment in a clear way. And second, because since this a whiteness stereotype, which of course, like studies of whiteness has have helped me, like starting with Toni Morrison, has have helped us very much to identify stereotypes that we don't feel they are stereotypes, but they are stereotypes as well. The English gentleman is a white white man stereotype that it's purposely being constructed, especially um, during the 19th century, but uh, with a lot of particularities uh, after uh, 18, the 1870s, when um, there is sort of um, uh, uh, a view that the British Empire needs more what they called colonial officers to be sent to this increasing and very spread out empire and with a lot of colonial outposts, especially in Asia. And they needed people who would follow instructions and who would sort of understand very well what were their what was their figure and their and their function and what they were representing in uh, because they were sending a, a small number of people uh, to each post, and therefore uh, the model, the informal uh, um, imperialist model of the British, needed very strong, um, not personalities, but but very fitting personalities that that would hold the the empire together, and therefore they created this stereotype of the English gentleman, uh, with all these attributes that were even part of the exams that they had to pass, um, which were very morally. Uh, structured. Um, and therefore, when we read Lord Jim today, even if the stereotype is there uh, and, and the criticism and the uncertainty of how much of this character that is called Jim, that is central in the novel, is or is not fitting to the stereotype of the English gentleman for which he has been instructed and committed to perform, um it, it it it's the whole um question of the of the book and how much the ways in which the empire is projecting itself through this english gentleman um fits with the reality of the empire and 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 what happens in the specific uh, malayan context here for this novel so now when we read this novel because the imperial English gentleman is not there anymore as a as ideological need, we probably miss it as part of what drives the narrative in such a strong way. This does not mean that we cannot read this book now. Of course we can. But all that all that narrative that the that was being questioned and interrogated, it's partly lost for us now if we don't go back to the historical context. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I also sense that there is um, an analysis of scale here, right? We, we do have the, the, the more large-scale post-colonial analysis that we have on empire, et cetera. Uh, but it seems to me that, especially in relation to Conrad's Lord Jim, that your analysis sort of burrows in into this very specific, uh, and I and I say small scale, or probably the be- the better word would be more a cellular almost uh, analysis of this one specific construction of the English gentleman and how that discursively represents the empire, uh, which I think. Um, well, it's 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 really uh, effective, I feel, especially in terms of its connection to the idea of narrative reliability, um, which you reframe as the problem of narrative reliability. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more on this specific refla- reframe um, and where you analyze reliability as a principle of narrative discourse. <laughs> Uh, I think um, what happens here, at least in the field of narratology, is that narrative unreliability has been very finely discussed and um, since the late 1990s, and a very um, so technically in a very detailed way. And I think that is fascinating. Um, but what the problem that I found, and this is the probably the most important contribution of this book, at least from my point of view, is the fact that because there are many voices, let's say, um, that do not fit a clear unreliability, we have left them out of the discussion of how they build uh um, I would say, like, distrust in the novel. So, or problematize the credibility in the novel. So all the cases that I review here, which are, which are um, Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, Conrad's Lord Jim, James Weldon Johnson's The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, Albert Camus' L'Etranger, um, and Alejo Carpentier, El Reino de Este Mundo, The Kingdom of This World, all these novels would not fit into any discussion of unreliability. However, you could argue that they have unreliable voices. And that happens because they stand in uncertainty. They stand in ambivalence. They are credible to a certain point. They are dubious or questionable to a great extent. So because they don't pronounce themselves as clearly unreliable, we haven't discussed them in terms of how they built or interrogate reliability. So from that reflection, I started thinking that we had not got into the core of the problem, which was not reliable or unreliable, but was uh, specifically the problem of how you built credibility, which might mean that to build distrust or to build trust, but it's a problem. The problem is how you build this reliability and how you built in that problem 
of of reliability how you uh, interrogate it because um this is something that, that doesn't have to 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 mean it's true or not true it's not a question of true or false it's a question of how much you get your reader or your listener not only in fiction to believe you it's a question of belief is a question of trust. And therefore, we haven't examined that as a problem and a principle in fiction. I think that reliability is a principle in, a, in, in any kind of narrative, fictional and non-fictional, that we haven't addressed as such. And that because we have only studied this division, we have left many of these interesting novels that explore how we create this reliability and how we deal with the problem of this reliability in discourse. Um, and that's how we reframe this as the problem of narrative reliability, not meaning reliability as something you feel it's credible, but as a principle that can be modulated in many, many, many different ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, um, I, I was wondering, just as a follow-up to your, to your uh, discussion just now on the problem of reliability, which I think it's such a important reframe of, and, and especially as it, uh, it seeks to, or whether it seeks to or not is irrelevant, but rather the effect is such that, you know, these reliability and unre- unreliability as pitted against one another is not so much the issue. It's how uh, we determine or how we build that trust with the reader or the novels rather build the trust with the reader, which I think is a very different question. Um, that's really important, especially in connection to your third chapter, which is the one on William Faulkner's Absalom Absalom entitled Degrees of Reliability, Miscegenation and the New South Creed in William Faulkner's Absalom Absalom. And so you locate the historical conflict, uh, you isolate the purposes of your analysis and what the racial, what racial discourses emerge there. Um, and so if you could illustrate uh, with uh, with absolute with this particular chapter, you know the the problem of reliability which you just explained. Um, yes, it's it's what what I meant by degrees of of reliability meant that this is a polyphonic novel. It has several um, narrators, and all of them have their point of view on the same story. And they're telling and piecing it out together, um, including many contradictions between the versions in in a situation that you can imagine um, for yourself in, in, in many other occasions, right, as happening around you. So um, you would have, for example, Rosa, which is a narrator who is... Um, uh, a, a widow of the Civil War, and she is um, very invested in in the New South Creed and the idea that we we lost the, the war and 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 that um, the 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 plantation um, moment and the pre Civil War period was much better than it is now, um, of course, has a view over 
um, the story that is completely different than, for example, Shreve, who is a Canadian who is talking to Quentin and who doesn't care much about the Southern context, but he just wants the story told in a manner that is logical and coherent. And so the ways in which you might trust Rosa for what she has experienced and she knows it's not exactly the same of how you would um, trust Shreve, who initially is very enthusiastic about the story and is a great teller. Um, So you engage with his story. And he also provides a solution to the enigma of why one character killed the other, why Quentin killed, uh, while well, one character, Henry, killed um, Bon. Um, but what happens is that Shreve invents parts of the story that you as a reader are not sure that is how it happened. And you don't know how he got he got, you know, the information from. So in a way, this creates sort of a myriad of characters who none of them could be fully reliable, if you want. Uh, Many people who talk about, uh, who don't like the idea that there are unreliable narrations criticize the fact that, well, all narrators are unreliable. And to a certain extent, that is true. So what... Again, the importance here is not to classify whether uh, whether Rosa is an unreliable narrator or not. It's to detect in, in what moments in the narrative and for what purposes and for what reasons and how they are introducing aspects that what they do is create a distance between the reader and the tale as it has been narrated and that's that's how I, I see sometimes this principle of reliability functioning as sort of um, a modulating distance that keeps changing between the reader and the narrative right at with extreme moments in which you would say well Shreve does say this character is black but he has no information about this we know there is no information about this so at that moment you would say who you would create an absolute distance and feel that it's being an unreliable narration but on the other, at other moments, you would feel, yes, he's following this and this and that, and we know all he's saying. So you will feel closer. You will feel more bonding reliability, as Fallon would say. Right? So I, I feel this, this works um, across the, the different narratives as that certain movement between reader and, and, and narration, creating a constant tension because you never you never know exactly if what you're being told is certain or uncertain. Right. Um and and just to follow up on that, like when the when this this narrative trust, there's this break, right? Or or the instability of of belief or trust uh, 
that that the reader experiences as a result of these uh, of these different uh, manners of of narrative delivery from the various characters, especially in Absalom Absalom. When the trust breaks, um, what would you say the implications of that are? Not not only in terms of highlighting uh, more formally the idea of the problem of reliability, but beyond that, what would you say the implications would be? I think in many ways, politically, the implications mm-hmm. are huge. Right. And that's probably the purpose of this book. Um, right. <laughs> to show that, in a way, um, this moment of breaking of the truth, and this happens, for example, in Alejo Carpentier's El Reino de Este Mundo, there is a crucial moment in which you have had the history or, or the experience of the of the Haitian revolution from the point of view of a slave. And at a moment in which he is being burnt, uh, um, you have two narratives. And you have been trusting the narrative that believes in the perspective of the voodoo. And all of a sudden, you're forced to change because you get the perspective of the French colonials who just see the body burning and while the slaves see the body sort of um, flowing away, right? Flying away. So at that moment, the, the reader sort of breaks with the sort of ideological commitment or subscription that she or he has been following till that point, right? If you if you believe Shreve's story, then you are assuming a racial ideology. At the moment in which you separate yourself from that, you are politically, in that case, breaking your commitment and adscription or assumption of that ideology, which at many points and for most of these novels is a desolating situation because there is no alternative. And that's one of the incredible things that these novels do, right? You are deciding that you don't believe my narrator, then you have to assume that you don't have a response to how this story ends. You don't have a response to what really happened uh, because you don't believe me. So in that sense, I think it's it's interesting because in many ways when you do this, in, and, and in our, for example, in our situation, the pandemic, for example, has also many times created this feeling that you don't believe to a certain point, all that is being said, and then and that you're feeling, you know, how, in a way, for example, all the the pharmaceutical um, medical industry is sort of, you know, making profit out of this, and in a way, you want to distance yourself, but you don't, you don't have an alternative, and. And that is the exact point, which is a very uncomfortable point that all these novels put you in, right? Because the novels all, in a way, compel you to believe in a way that is kind of complicit with racial ideologies, as you might expect from in different, very different degrees, in very different ways, 
from many of these writers. So it's the same point of uncertainty and feeling uncomfortable when you don't align. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I asked about the implications because, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very clear that there, there's some important political implications here, and especially in a milieu where we do have a lot of misinformation and a lot of... Um, a lot of political discourse that misleads and and and, and creates a lot of doubt um, in um, in the electorate um, all over the world. But but I think your example of the pandemic is especially a poignant one um, in the sense that it estranges uh, people from their medical providers. It estranges them from their political representatives. Um, you know this idea of um, separating oneself or not fully buying into whatever story that is that is being um, that is being provided, and so that sort of for me is a nice segue uh, in talking a little bit about your fourth chapter, especially with this idea of estrangement uh, and distancing, like this dis- uh, this dissonance in the narrative itself, um, where you address from the start the problem of narration. <laughs> Uh, with a narrative voice in the novel. Um, it's a very puzzling book, of course. And um, you write this, uh, you state that the narrator uses this estranging narrative um, or underreporting as an ideological strategy common in colonial discourse, um, which then suggests that the narrative can be read as discordant itself. And you follow this up with this brief statement requires some disentangling. And so um, if you can do a brief disentangling um, of that particular statement about your for, uh, about Camus' uh, Stranger um, in relation to everything that we've talked about so far. Uh, yes, in this chapter on Albert Camus L'Etranger, um, mm-hmm. I thought it is um, very interesting because an uh, unreliability many times is not in in reliability in the in, in the problem of, of reliability is mostly many times building not only what you say but on what you don't say, or in what you say that is covering or has implications that are not directly said but are implicit. And I will explain this in a second. But what happens in l'étranger is that. Um, you have a narrator that underreports, doesn't say much, doesn't express much. And then you might assume that as part of what, the way he narrates, but this keeps accumulating in a way that you feel that the narration is um, neglecting several things. And this happens when you learn and, and when, uh, and in, when in the trial, um, the issue or the fact that, um, the, uh, Merceau, the, the narrator has killed an Arab comes into, to the surface in a way in which the narrator has, has an, you know, even mentioned almost. Um, and then in a way, the whole question of um, what is the what are the racial implications there? Uh, not only racial and politically speaking always, I always talk about race not that much in terms of political or, or, or of identity politics, but more 
on uh, on the ways in which race has been mobilized um, in this case for imperial matters. Um, so part of the of the strategy that Merceau uses um, is an sort of an a covered strategy in the sense that what Camille uh, did um, and invested a lot of time doing this is in constructing a discourse of what was called uh, la Méditerranée, of the Mediterranean. And what this discourse that seems very enthusiastic about how different people in the in the different cultures in the Mediterranean are, and how you know they are devoted to pleasure, to they have a special sensitivity, um, they have a common root, etc. In fact, this was used in co- in colonial Algeria in the 1930s, and especially by the School of Alger, uh, a set of group of writers, to sort of buttress an ideological argument, which was a French colonial argument, that meant that uh, Algeria had been originally sort of uh, a Latin country, and therefore um, that was, was where all the cultural... Um, Mediterranean values were coming. And then only later, Arabs came into the country and occupied it. And therefore, in a way, the French uh, colonial occupation was part of, you know, a recovery of the old values that we had. So in a certain way, the fact the way in which Arabs were treated by the colonial Algeria, in which they were asked to be naturalized and sort of lose and leave their uh, Muslim um, um, religion aside, um, was part to became to become pure Algerians in a way was was built or reinforced by all this discourse of the Mediterranean, which you can find. In all l'étranger, if you remember l'étranger, he's he's all the time swimming and 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 talking about you know the beaches and all that in a way that really um, it under it under reports all the implications that this discourse had for organizing racially who was the real Algerian and who not, uh, but it's what is being said in the novel. And that you don't realize if you don't know about it in a certain way. Because the Arabs as such are never addressed or object of interest or subjects of interest by the narrator. And that's how you say see underreporting, because the whole problem we, between the problem between Arabite and Algerite is never there, but it's developed implicitly through the discourse of the Mediterranean. That's really remarkable, actually, as an analysis. I, um, it's very inspiring, Marta. Um, um, I really love your book. And um, so I wanted to, and you know, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I wanted to um, address a little bit on uh, some points on Chapter 2, which is an analysis on James Weldon Johnson's um, The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. And you locate reliability at the threshold of narrative. And, and you link paratext genre and narrative in your analysis there. Um, 
you know, where, you know, the text itself, given its origins and how it was um, anonymously published, published uh, it, it was a, a political act in, in a sense, but then there's this threat that you locate, uh, the threat of passing for white. Could you speak a little more on how the chapter views textual location of reliability and how it reinforces independ- its dependence on historical context? Um, yes, I think this is a fascinating book because it has a history, publication history that um, makes you think about um, the idea of the versions and the idea of where to locate reliability. And so the first version of the autobiography of an ex-colored man was published in 1912 as anonymously. And then the title itself, the autobiography of an ex-colored man, being this story in the first person voice, talking about uh, how this person uh, is now passing for white, um, it's a story that could be easily be taken as true. Um, because in a way, the editors in the preface also invited that reading. And therefore, um, you could easily think, well, who is that person who is whose identity is not revealed because this is anonymous and he's telling his own story? It reflects very much um, the context in which there were many autobiographies that we're doing in 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 in, in texts that were nonfiction texts like uh, the slave narratives that were circulating as well as part of this tradition that uh, of African American literature of telling your own story uh, in the first person and and then giving um, giving account of what. Um, what was happening with uh, African-American discrimination and the idea of passing as being a menace um, um, as seen in in the moment of publication. But then in the second edition, what happened is that James Weldon Johnson was uh, became a very acclaimed author in the Harlem Renaissance, and he was taken as a literary model as well for the development of African-American culture uh, in ways in which the Harlem Renaissance, as you know, reaffirmed very much and explored very much African-American culture and sort of uh, vindicated it as part of, or re-vindicated it as part of, of um, a full identity that, that was um, developing its own literature. So the second publication in, in 1927 um included the idea that this was a novel so it it deter it, it it declared the genre of the novel so it was fictionalized in a certain way and therefore you would have the fact that um this this became be, becoming a novel um you first would locate the narrative voice in in the text which was is also unreliable or it's questionable in terms of underliability. You will locate that in in the realm of fiction and not that much as an autobiography in the threshold between what is fiction and what is not fiction. And so in a way, the problem, which is a social problem of passing, 
gets you know um, sort of taken into back into the fiction, which is a much more a much less menacing space than that of of of. Of 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 a text that is non is nonfiction, right? And so I think that paradox in that sense, the fact that, that the first was anonymously published and could be inter- interpreted as somebody who was really passing, and therefore placing uh, a racial threats into the white readers, um, which is an action that is being removed later, is something that I think interrogates where you place reliability in relation to the problem of reliability in relation to the readers and the social context in which is being published and read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, and again, I, I'm really enjoying our conversation, but I don't, uh, I know you're busy and you have uh, a lot of projects going on and speaking about those, um, you indicate in your bio that you are working on literature on global environments and especially the ocean. Um, And if you could tell us a little bit more on this work and future projects as they connect to our conversation today, or even if they don't connect to our conversation. (laughs) They really connect even if it's not apparent. They're always connected. But I can tell how they connect. Um, And it's interesting. So I'm working now on global ideologies. So thinking again about how we construct ideologies through discourse and through narratives. And uh, in this case, I've been investigating for the for the, the past few years how we have built um, global discourses and especially um, related to spaces that we consider global. And in that sense, I'm especially focusing on the sea and narratives of the sea, which <laughs> convey the idea that, or make us believe historically, that the sea is a global space, is a common space for everybody and is shared, and that it needs to be globally managed and internationally managed, and that it we need to share it, um, and that it's separate in a way from the political or escapes the political bound, national boundaries because it's internationally managed. So thinking about that, ideology, I started thinking about the ocean as a um as a space, because through through um, Melville's Benito Cereno uh, and another Juan Benet's uh, Subrosa, which is uh, a short story by a Spanish writer, in which they use unreliability or they interrogate reliability, to say it better. Um, because at sea, many things happen that are lost because people... Uh, don't survive because um, like uh, the uh, slaves that were thrown uh, overboard, um, there is a lot of margin to do things that get unregistered and untraced. And therefore, the narratives of the sea many times contain this problems of uncertainty, ambivalence, unreliability, um, and they, in a way, they, they, they contain this interrogation about this spacious, um, this special space. And so from there, I started thinking the sea as a special space and the ideologies that are being constructed about the sea 
and and how they relate to especially crime since from this example of 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 the slave traffic um and so that's how i got into the sea criminality at sea and global ideologies that i'm working on now yeah that's really interesting and i i cannot help but think that there's um there is perhaps like in that trajectory that there or in that in that project that there might be even space to consider even the migrant literatures right where we have people using the sea as this international space moving from border to border um which border crossing is also criminalized in our military militarized uh, borders and so um that would be a, an interesting um it's it's a very interesting project that i look forward to learning more and reading about Sure. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have really enjoyed our conversation, Marta, and thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing your work with me and the listeners, uh, whom I thank so much for engaging with these ideas. And again, I'm just thrilled we had this conversation. Um, I think your book is crucial to literary theory and literary studies and such an important intervention. Um, thank you again, and I look forward to all your future projects. Thank you very much, Geralda. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Of course, Thanks. Yes, thank you. Talk soon. <laughs>